0: There's there's one addition to our order of service uh, starting this year. You'll notice in your bulletin, you'll note that after the message, um, after offering, there's a response prayer time. Um, This past um, October, uh, when, uh, November, when Bob and I and Mike went to Kazakhstan, one thing we noticed in the Russian church was they had believers uh, respond to the word of God um, by openly praying in response to the message. And we were so blessed um, by the experience. We want to incorporate it into our worship service, the cornerstone. And we believe that it's so right. Um, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, that worship is a corporate experience. And as the Word of God is proclaimed, it just seems so right and biblical that the body is able to respond in kind by praying to God and in response to the Word of God. So, we're going to go... In alphabetical order, uh, all the men in good standing numbers of Cornerstone. And for this morning, we'll have Kirk and Jerry praying in response to the Word of God. Well, we're continuing our four-part series on on biblical eldership. The reason for this is that the theme of this year, 2004, is the church, the glory of Christ's church. That we might all attain to the fullness of the measure of Christ. Four part three. Last week was God's call to all men of Cornerstone, Noble Ambition. Today we'll be studying Godly Character. Next week, A Faithful Shepherd of One's Family, part three. And the week after that, part four, Christian Service. Well, last week we started with this question. I want to start that again this, this morning. Last week, we asked all the men here in service, what is your aspiration in life? What is your single overriding passion in life? What is your ambition in life? What do you you want to accomplish with your life? That word ambition, aspiration, the Greek word epistemia, desire, Paul uses that, in the positive sense, three times in his epistles. The first time is found in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Paul tells the believers, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands. Why? So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul said, make it your ambition to work hard, To be devoted to your work Devoted to your life So that You might have the platform To proclaim the gospel That you will not be dependent on anyone 1 Thessalonians 4 11 His second time he uses the word Is found in Romans 15 20 And he talks about himself He says his personal ambition in life Is to preach the gospel Where Christ has not been preached So that he will not build on anyone else's foundation in First Timothy three, it's the third time he uses that, that word ambition, and he says, if anyone aspires, if anyone's ambition is to be the office to the office of overseer, Paul says he desires a noble task. So he's telling us that if you are a man, if you are a Christian. One of your key ambitions in life must be to be an elder of your own church. Paul calls this ambition a noble ambition. It's the Greek word kolos. It is a beautiful aspiration. It is a praiseworthy goal. If you seek as a man to be an elder, a shepherd, a pastor, an overseer of your own church, it's a good thing. It's a praiseworthy thing. It's a beautiful aspiration you're desiring after. Now, you might say, James, you know, it sounds a little raw. It sounds a little, it's kind of twisted. Because it sounds like Paul is calling us to be self-willed. Isn't that, doesn't that disqualify you from being an elder? Shouldn't you seek to be humble and kind of sit in the back and try not to be noticed and not aspire to be a leader in the church, that seems kind of opposite, upside down. How are we to understand this, James? How are we to biblically aspire to the office of an elder while well, at the same time not coveting the office, at the same time not coveting the position? Well, maybe this illustration will help us. <coughs> um read this years ago. I think mean, I shared a couple times as well. A certain man went to a piano recital and um, listened to a master pianist. The pianist played beautifully. The audience was mesmerized by his performance. After the performance, the man had put a chance to talk to this pianist and he said to him, I was just blown away by your performance. It's the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. I would give my life to play like you. And the pianist replied, I did. I gave my life to play like this. It took hours and hours of dedication, discipline, and self-sacrifice. I've lost sleep, went without meals, went went without creature comforts, countless hours of practice so that I might play in this way. It took my whole life to be a master pianist. And I believe that is what Paul is saying here. All Christian men should have the ambition to be an elder in their church. And how can they be an elder? By having these character qualities. You aspire not by giftedness, not by personality, not by buying the office, not by knowledge, not by talent but by growing in godliness, by growing in character. Does that make sense? It's the idea like, and you guys can understand this, I want to play ball like Jordan. Man, I want to play like him. Great, then practice like him, right? Wake up in the morning, all day and all night, have, you know, don't eat McDonald's, or don't have In-N-Out burgers, don't have fries, don't have milkshakes. It's like, man, I want to be godly like Archie Stroll. Great. And you know what? you got to pray like him. You've got to deny yourself of earthly things. you got to read scripture, read theology, learn Latin, Greek, and Hebrew like him. That's the idea here. Paul says, strive. Make it your ambition, man, to have a high standard. The standard of an elder. And how do you become an elder? having these character qualities, it's the right focus of how to seek the, sp- how to the office. It is how to aspire. That it is about, first and foremost, about godly character. The focus is not the office. The focus of this whole passage is on godly character. And so from this point on, starting in verse, verse 2, <coughs> Paul uses 12 adjectives, 12 qualifications, and he draws us a picture of a godly man, picture of a man that we should aspire after. There are eight positive qualifications and four negative qualifications, four prohibitive qualifications. Now, before we get to each one and consider each one one by one, um, I'm going to share with you seven insights about these character qualities of an elder. Seven truths. Um, that God would choose these twelve reveals to us seven things about a godly man, about the office of the elder. First insight about these qualities is that they are all marks of spiritual maturity. All of them are marks of spiritual maturity. These qualifications are attitudes. Attitudes that are present in all mature believers. These qualities mock the man. They set him apart. It is God's way of saying... This is what mature Christianity looks like. You will notice in all these qualities, doesn't have things like pious, or praise loudly, or read read a lot of books, or has a lot of education, or has a lack of personality, or is very dynamic. Those things aren't mentioned in, in, in these qualities. God is outlining what it means to be spiritually mature. Practices that are present in all mature believers. They mark the man or woman who has grown in Christ and has genuinely experienced the life-changing power of the Lord. There are clear signals, if you will, that this man has in private and public arenas of his life, that he has entrusted himself to God's Word, that he has Obeyed God's word and has accordingly borne fruit. God is telling us foremost that the men who will lead God's church must be holy men. Men of impeccable standard. Marks of spiritual maturity. These are qualities that are not innate in any man. No man is born above reproach. No man is born temperate, self-controlled. You know, wise. Gentle. No one is born with these things. They are qualities that are brought about by ear in and ear out of careful and disciplined living. Only those who are spiritually mature will possess these qualities. First insight. Second insight is that they are also marks of leadership. They are also marks of leadership. Let me qualify that. Marks of spiritual leadership. God-empowered leadership. It tells us that it's not about personality. It's not about physical stature, personal influence. It's not about being a visionary. Because believers don't follow these things. Believers don't follow titles. Believers don't follow degrees. Christians follow spiritual power. Genuine godliness, men, man who has sincere and true faith. These marks demonstrate a man's capacity to lead others in the Christian life, the spiritual life. These marks tell the church that this man has risen above his own Christian life, and now he is able to lead others Spiritually. He's able to minister to others, not by this word, but by His life. To a degree, He has mastered His own flesh. And now He's competent to grant hope and strength to weaker believers. It tells the church that He knows the scriptures. He knows sound doctrine. And He has trained Himself to be godly. He has disciplined himself to a life of holiness. 1 Timothy 4 7. He has overcome sinful habits. He is regularly in prayer. He has developed godly habits, godly patterns of living and thinking. And therefore, now he is a spiritual leader. He's, he's, he's able to help others spiritually. Again, This is God's way of marking him out, marking a man out for spiritual leadership. Number three, third insight. They reveal what God values in leaders. They reveal what God values in leaders. God is not pragmatic. He is first and foremost interested in what a man is before what a man can do. This passage is a radical redefinition of what it means to be a successful leader. It tells us that what God values in a man is not what he can do. It's not his performance. It is his character, who he is before God. Philip Brooks, a prominent pastor of the 19th century, said this, quote, What the pastor is, is far more important than what he is able to do. for what he gives force to is what he does. In the long run, ministry is what we are as much as what we do. End quote. Number four, there are absolute qualifications. There are absolute qualifications. Let me get my bottle of water here. Look, look with me in verse 2. Verse 2 you will note. Therefore an elder must be above reproach. Verses 2 through 6 in the Greek, one single sentence. That must correspond to every adjective in, in verses 2 through 6. In verse 7, <laughs> it is a whole new sentence. Again, that must is there. That tells us that it is an absolute requirement. These are absolute qualifications. These are not optional. These are not secondary. These are absolute requirements for those uh, seeking to be elders, seeking to be leaders in the church. Fifthly, at the same time, they are not met with perfection. They are not met with perfection. Now, if a man is honest about his life on the inside, everyone here reading these qualifications, they would say to themselves, who can be qualified? I've been a Christian a long time, and I've never met a single person who meet these qualifications. And this will often cause many to shrink back from leadership. There's a temptation to go to either extreme. Some are self-deceived. They they have delusions of of grandeur. They entertain high views of themselves. So they seek the office when they clearly are not qualified. But there is the other danger, the false humility. They are so obsessed with their own imperfections they have such a low view of themselves, such a false view of others, that they see themselves completely unfit for service. Uh, they they put, their, put the standards so high that no one is qualified. It is a standard that is even above Scripture. In their pride, they have put standards even above the Word of God itself. Now, it's helpful, it's very helpful for us to realize that every one of the qualifications listed here in first 53 is a degree qualification. It's a degree qualification, except for one husband of one wife. Except for that singular qualification, every single one is a degree qualification. And what does that mean? Well, let me explain this. Um, <coughs> my wife with me a few years ago. Um, Mr. Rex Morgia, and myself, and my wife, Serena, the opportunity uh, to go to the East Coast to minister at a college retreat. And the host of the retreat uh, introduced all of us, the students, and introduced me as James Chen, the pastor of Cornerstone Bible Church, you know, and so on and so forth. And then he introduced Rex, and he introduced him as the cool guy. And I was like, hey, how come you say I'm the cool guy? Right? Just because I don't have sideburns and wear baggy clothes and sit with a deep voice, I'm not cool. Right? But when, you're, when someone describes it as a cool guy, you know, that's a degree term, right? I'm sure they could see me as cool, but I'm not as cool as Rex. Right? Rex is cooler than me. Right? That's a degree description. Or if someone says, "Well, oh, you're smart. Well, you know, that's, that's a degree you're smarter than me, or you're smarter than the next guy. Or you're athletic. Or you're strong. Those are all degree descriptions, right? What's a non-degree description? You're a man, right? Or you know, Sophie's pregnant. That's not degrees. degree. He is it, he is it. Right? Or are you a Christian or not? You either are a Christian or you're not a Christian. Well, all the qualifications here are degree uh, qualifications. Being proportional. So, yes, they are absolute, but at the same time, the the issue is relative to the church. And in proportional measure, are you growing in them? That's what God is interested in. There is no minimal standard of absolute because they are all degreed. (coughs) Number six. These are all perceived characteristics. These are all perceived characteristics. And think with me for a moment. Character is not defined by oneself, right? I can't say I am a temperate man. I can't tell you I'm above reproach. I can't tell you I'm a, I don't, my heart is towards my life alone. I can't tell you I'm self-controlled. Character is much like reputation. Reputation. That's why in verse 7, he says he must be well thought of outsiders, have a good reputation of outsiders. It's the same thing. He must have a reputation of godliness within the church as well as outside. So these are all perceived characteristics. Only God knows the true character of a man because God is the heart searcher. But us, we don't know a man's heart. All we can go on is their behavior, their attitude, and the perception of those that are near them. So, in the life of the church, whose views do we consider? Right? When we have a man, we consider for an elder or a leader in the church. Right? Whose views do we consider? If you're a man, who should be important to you? Whose opinions, whose views should be important to you? Three categories. The first opinion, first view that we should consider, that you should consider as well, is family. It's family, those that are dearest and nearest to you. Pastor MacArthur wrote this, quote, If you want to know whether a man lives an exemplary life, whether he is consistent, whether he can teach and model the truth, whether he can lead people to salvation, to holiness, and to serve God, then look at the most intimate relationships in his life and see if he can do it there. Look at his family, and you will find the people who know him best, who scrutinize him most closely. Ask them about the kind of man he is." John Bunyan's book is called Pilgrim's Progress. Is a man named Talkative, and uh, the Christian describes him as saint abroad, but devil at home. So how can you know your true character, who you really are? Ask the people at home. I challenge you, if you are serious about your faith, ask dangerous questions to your family members. Go home and ask your parents. Ask your parents. Go home and ask your brother, ask your sister, go home and ask your husband this, or ask your wife this, about your own character. Ask them to go down this list, and call them on any point that you are lacking. Right? Ask him: is my Christianity true? Am I serious about my faith? Ask them, what sin in my life am I blind to? Ask them, what do I do that brings reproach to Christ and to the gospel? Ask them, do you know of any habitual or constitutional sins in my life? Can you point them out to me? The first you would ask is your own family members, because they know you the best. Character is not what you say about yourself. The last verse of the book of Judges is that they did what was right in their own eyes. We are all justified in our own eyes. The first place to ask, first place to look is the perception of our family members. Secondly, spiritual family. Ask the church. <laughs> ask fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Ask the fellowship. Is there anything in my life that's dishonoring to the Lord? In my entertainment choices? The music I listen to, the jokes that I tell, the attitudes that I have. Is there anything in my life that's designed to the Lord? You tell me. And the third place to look to to consider are elders. Ask your elders. That's what ordination is all about, right? Ordination is Godly man ordaining the next generation of leaders and affirming their, their qualification. So if you want to know, your, know how you're doing in these areas, ask your elders. Ask your shepherds. I think as elders, we know very well uh, what areas a man is growing in and what areas men are struggling in. Because these are the qualities that we are striving after daily. This is our life. We live in First Timothy 3. We, we eat and drink Titus 1. This is what we're all about. Therefore, we easily recognize these in other men. I easily recognize them. You know, a few years ago, there was a gal. She graduated from a, a piano recital college. I don't know, she had a recital for all her friends. So they invited my wife and I, so we went. What do I know about classical music and, you know, piano recitals? And she was playing for like an hour and a half, and I was pretty really impressed. But I could not tell if she made any mistakes. I could not tell if she messed up or she's she wrong beat, wrong tune. She could have played anything, and I would have had no idea, because what do I know about piano recitals, right? Uh, you know, a few years later, my wife and I went to a ballet, and there were guys and gals jumping around, and guys in real tight clothing, just with all these moves. And if they made a mistake, if they jumped on a wrong beat, or they were doing it wrong, I had no idea, because what do I know about ballet? But you know what? I play sports. I play basketball. So when I see someone play basketball, I can tell right away if they have skills or not, right? I can see maybe been play for a minute and I know whether they can really play or they self deceived right? Well, same thing as an elder, right? Same thing as a pastor. Because this is our, this is our commodity of life. This is what we exchange daily. Um, When we see these qualities in a man, we see it clearly. So, these are perceived characteristics. Where do you go to see where you're at? You don't ask yourself. You ask your family. You ask all the brothers and sisters in Christ. And you ask the elders. And the final one. These qualifications are goals. They are targets for all Christians, men and women alike these aren't the goals just for pastors and elders. They are not just for uh, leaders, but because they are marks of spiritual maturity, because they are marks of spiritual leadership, these are goals that every Christian should aspire after, not just elders, not just leaders, and not just men. Okay, well, let's go to a text and go through a one-by-one There are 12. We'll skip two. Uh, I'll be addressing them in future sessions. So we'll address 10 of them. Let's start with the first one. Verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. Above reproach. This is the overarching general qualification. Another translation added, blameless. Meaning above accusation. Beyond fault. Above... Above rebuke, above disgrace, above discredit. He is unreproachable. The root word here is lambana, means take hold of. There is nothing you can hold him to. You can't blame him for anything. You can't hold him to account for anything. He is above that. Meaning, his conduct is such that there is nothing present in the man that would bring injury to his reputation. Now, note that Paul does not say completely righteous. He's not talking about the presence of perfection. Then no one will be qualified. But he's talking about an absence of a significant flaw in his life and in his character. <laughs> he cannot be blamed. He cannot be held to an account. Right? He's not intentionally... Sinning, overtly sinning. He is striving for righteousness, and like all men, he is falling short. But come on, you can't blame him for falling short because we all fall short. It does mean that his life is not marred by some sin, some vice, some evil, some habit, some attitude. But he's above that. He is beyond accusation. That is awesome, isn't it? That's the first qualification. It's not pointing to his personality. It's not about introvert or extrovert. It's not whether he's charismatic personality or not, or his gifts or abilities or his intelligence. No. The first is his moral quality of being above reproach. The second one is the husband of one wife, The Greek construction is one woman man we're actually going to study this next week so we'll move on to the third one the third one is very important it means sober minded sober minded Um, another word that is used by other translators is temperate temperate Um, the literal rendering in the Greek is without wine without wine it's pointing to his um, emotions here, I think. Right. It, it, it alludes to a man's emotional approach to life. He is not slave to the extremes in his emotions, like someone who is under the influence of wine. Or someone who is influenced by wine, he, he is really giddy, and then he's depressed. And he swims back and forth because the influence of wine. Well, not the godly man. His attitude, his emotions is stable, It's consistent. He is balanced through the joys and storms of life. Through the good and the bad, he is temperate from extremes. He is balanced. So in a statement, I would say that a leader, a godly man is not moody. Right. A godly man is not a moody person. He has control over his own heart. His own emotions. He doesn't allow petty little things to affect his heart. Get him all down. Or small joys, get him all happy and excited. A godly man is not easily irritated, not easily bothered, easily angered. He doesn't snap at insignificant distractions or difficulties. He's not the kind of man where his family is walking on eggshells because his emotions are so brittle. His friends have to be careful of what they say or how they treat him because he's so sensitive. No, he's temperate. He soaks it all in. He is even healed. He is balanced. Yeah, right? much like Job, through all the trials and tribulations, He soaks it all in, and he responds with moderation in his heart. Knowing that God is sovereign, his emotions aren't dependent on circumstances, but on the changeless God. See, that's a vice of youth, right? Youth, young people, we tend to respond emotionally. We tend to react just with emotions, but not a godly man. Fourth qualification, fourth description is self-controlled. <laughs> self-controlled. Here's the balance. Um, Temperate points to the emotions. The Greek word here is sophron. It points to the mind, wisdom, self-controlled in mind. It speaks of being clear-minded, of understanding priorities. It points to wisdom. Making right decisions. It means a godly man is one who thinks clearly. He possesses the inner strength to refrain from any excess and to understand the priorities of the life of the believer and to make sensible, sound decisions. It is a man who is serious about spiritual things. He is not rash in judgment, but he's thoughtful. He's earnest. He's cautious. The best way I understand it is, you know, he, he has street smarts, right? He knows how to deal with people. He knows how to go to a used car dealership and deal with a used car deal, you know, salesman. At the same time, you can deal with, you know, uh, people who are older, women who are older. He knows how to deal with young people. He knows how to go through the street and make wise decisions in life, at home as well. He has sweet smarts. Right? It's not about intelligence, not about IQ, not about degrees. He is saffron. So he has wisdom. Right? Fifth, fifth description is that he is respectable. Respectable. The Greek word is really interesting here. Is The Greek word kosmos, where we get the word cosmos, which means orderly opposite of chaos so a godly man's life his life is ordered everything is in his place right everything his church life is in his place his business life is in his place his friendships are in order relationships with his wife his children are in order right? his work Right, his hobbies, entertainment choices they're all in order Right. because his life is so ordered, he commands respect. Men around him, he can't hold it back. They have to just give him respect, because he, he's got his stuff in his row, right? in, a, in a row. Right. His family, his children, just have to give him respect, because his life is so ordered. Right. Right. Ministry is no place for a man whose life is chaotic, his life is not ordered. We'll talk about this more next week, but the first place to order your life is, is your life and then ministry. The sixth description is hospitable. It is a virtue repeatedly commanded in the scriptures. Romans 12, 13. Practice hospitality. Share with God people who are in need. Hebrews 13, 2. Do not forget to in- entertain strangers. 1 Peter 4 9, offer hospitality without grumbling. It is a compound word in the Greek. It means a lover of strangers. literally means that you love foreigners. You love people that are different from you, that are strangers, that are foreign to you. Hospitality. The seventh description is able to teach. We'll study that in two weeks. Less number eight, he is not a drunkard. A simple one there, right? The issue here is not abstinence. No, it's it's not. Doesn't say never drinks alcohol, but he's not a drunkard. He's not a, he's not addicted to alcohol. He's not literally near alcohol all the time. All right. He's not a lover of 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 wine. Number nine, he's not violent. Not violent literally means. He's not a striker. He's not given to blows. It, it speaks of a man who's there's a man men who are always ready for a fight, right? I mean, they 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 exert influence by violence, you know, like um, coach Bobby Knight, right? How does he coach by intimidation, right? By by physical or emotional or verbal uh, intimidation, right? No, a godly man does not settle dispute with blows. He reacts to difficult situations with gentleness, with calm, with temperance. Right? It is important that men are, men are this way. It is important that leaders of the church are this way because as elders, we get into some heated situations. And I know I do. I know I get into some... You know, real intense situations where I have to confront sin. I have to uh, bring peace in among a couple that are fighting. Uh, I have to get in situations where I have to enact discipline, personal attacks. I mean, it gets really intense. And therefore, godly men, godly elders must be men who are not given to blows, right? Instead of being violent, the opposite, verse verse 3, the 10th mark, that he is gentle. Describes the person who is opposite of a striker. Describes the man who is considerate, who is forbearing, who is gracious. He lives his life not on the basis of his rights, but on his responsibilities. A trait that is commanded to all believers, gentleness, Philippians 4, 5. Eleventh mark. He's not quarrelsome. He's not someone who's seeking a controversy. He's not someone who's out for an argument, out to debate. It talks about his attitude. He's not a contentious person. He's seeking unity, not disunity. And the final mark of a, of a quality that all men should aspire to is that he's not a lover of money. Not a lover of money. Paul here is not disqualifying a man for being rich. What disqualifies a man from being an elder is this mark of immaturity, loving money. First Timothy six, Paul warns that love of money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. Loving it is Love of it, right? Therefore, men are to aspire to have the characteristic of being generous, compassionate, giving, and being content in their situation, in their lot in life. Well, just three final thoughts to close our time. Again, let me ask the men this morning what is your ambition? What is your ambition in life? Does it involve having the standards of eldership in your life? Being a leader here at our church? If it doesn't, may God grant you the heart this morning for you to change your heart. That you will seek, you will aspire, you will make your life's aspiration To to have these qualities that God might, if God so chooses, use you as a leader, as a servant leader at our body. Secondly, on this list of 12 things, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Do you have the courage to ask your wife tonight? You have the courage to ask your husband, ask your brother or sister. You have the courage to ask your parents if you're living at home. That's where Christianity begins, right? At home. Thirdly, I would exhort all the men to make it a point of prayer. To go to God and ask the Holy Spirit that God might birth these qualities in your life. In humility, on your knees, ask God to change your heart, to change my heart, that God might produce these traits, these marks in our own lives. And may we pray for one another that God would raise up such men such qualities in the men of our church: men who are above reproach, men who are temperate, men who are wise, respectable, hospitable, men who are gentle. Our Holy Father, we are truly humbled um, at the responsibility you've given us. Lord, who will shepherd and lead our church? Who will care and feed for her? Lord, you've committed this responsibility to us as men to be the guardians to be the protectors and the shepherds of our flock. And as we consider these qualities, Lord, um, we fall so short. It is... It is... It is quite humbling to consider where we are and how far more we still have yet to go. But God... We have only one resource available to us and that is one of prayer. Lord, the Bible says that you are on our side. The Bible teaches us that you have given us the Holy Spirit. The Bible promises us that, that the Holy Spirit is actually working in us. That as we abide in you you will bear in us fruit that will be glory to you. So Lord, as As men of the church, we offer up to you um, the most sincere prayer that we can muster up. Lord, we need your help. We need your assistance. Lord, we need your power. That the elders of our church and and the men of our church, Lord, that we need to grow in these areas and that you would grow these areas in us. By ourselves, Lord, we are helpless and there is no hope. But in Christ, Lord, we know that what you have promised, you will do. So Lord, we commit ourselves to your promises. We trust ourselves to you in prayer. We humbly pray that you would raise godly men in our midst this year. As we focus on the glory of the bride of Christ, as we focus on building up the church this year how can we do that without godly men to lead us Lord that you will raise up up such men in our midst who will go before us who will be models, who will be examples who will be pioneers for us who will lead us to you we thank you for giving us such a clear picture of of a godly man in the scriptures we thank you for the scriptures that assist us, that help us. Lord, we pray that you grant us the heart uh, to make that, make issues uh, part of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.